I take from my text this morning the 16th verse of the book of the 6th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. Please pray with me. God of goodness, who is present in history, open our minds and our hearts to experience your word anew and thus transform our lives. Amen. Today, we get the privilege of continuing our look at First and Second Samuel. Yes, that's right, the privilege. Because these texts continue to blow my socks off with their unexpected layers of meaning and interpretation. Consider my socks blown. I am sockless. <laughs> Last Sunday, we left off the story with David's public lament over the death of Saul and Jonathan at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Here was a leader who was naming his pain publicly for all to see. It's a powerful statement and example for all of us. In the following chapters of 2 Samuel, chapters 2 through 5, David fights for the throne. With Saul dead, the throne of Saul was wide open to whoever had the forces and the daring to go for it. David launched his campaign by consolidating this power within his own tribe of Judah. Saul's general, Abner, opposed David and threw, his weight behind, threw the weight of Saul's army behind Saul's son, Ishbael. The two sides fought a, fought a decisive battle at Gibeon where David won a major victory. In the months that followed, David's army harried and rounded up Saul's forces until both Abner and Ishbael were dead. Having vanquished all his foes, David crowned himself king over all Israel. Aware of his tenuous position as king, however, David made two strategic moves. First, he conquered Jerusalem, which up to this point had been a Canaanite city. Believe it or not, that's actually true. Jerusalem had the advantage of being a city on a hill and therefore easily defensible. It was also within the borders of Judah, David's home base, and strategically placed to allow David to project his power into neighboring areas. David's second key strategic move was to move the Ark of the Covenant, that symbol of Israelite religion, from Shiloh, which was the center of Saul's partisans, to Jerusalem, the new capital of the city of David. 2 Samuel 6 tells the story of the triumphal march of the ark into that city. It marked the final conclusion of David's struggle for power. Finally, David had done it. He reigned supreme over all Israel. And so when the ark was being brought into the city, David danced. David danced with abandon. He had done it. He celebrated his great victory, his ultimate triumph. He was king. If the story contained only those details... It would be one thing. But there's another undercurrent to the passage. And that undercurrent is represented by David's wife, Michal. Michal, if you recall, was the daughter of Saul. She had been given to David as a reward for his defeat of Goliath. And, as the text says, she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. There is a surprising twist. She despised him in her heart. Why? Well, she was not a disinterested observer. 
She knew all the events that had transpired up to that point. She knew how David had conspired against her father and used his marriage to her to legitimize his throne. She remembered how David had allied himself with the Philistines and kept his army away from the pivotal battle which allowed the Philistines to defeat and kill Saul and Jonathan. She heard of the reports of the death of her brother, Ishbael, at the hands of David's men. And now she had to watch David gloat as he proclaimed his victory. The end of the chapter, the part which we don't read for today, tells of what happened when David returned home to Michal after dancing before the ark. Listen to this encounter as it's told in the New Revised Standard Version. David returned home to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' maids, as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me in place of your father, and all his household, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I have danced before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in my own eyes. But by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Yes, Michal, I danced. I danced so much that I exposed myself before all who watched, including all of those servant maids. And you know what, Michal? They loved it. And I'll use that and them however I like. The chapter concludes, the chapter concludes with the line, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. Once David had what he wanted, once he had the throne, he didn't need Michal anymore, so he discarded her and ignored her the rest of his time as king. Whew. <laughs> These are two very different takes on the same series of events, one from David and one from Michal. These two different perspectives bring up something very important for us today. As most of you know already, I am a big fan of history. Not just history in terms of tales from the past, which I find fascinating, but also history itself. I mean the concept of history. History is the process of interpretation. It's not just telling what happened. There are objective events that occur, one after another, but history is the discipline that puts those events into some sort of order into some narrative to make sense of them. It's a process that requires endless choices about what details matter to the overall narrative and which details do not. Just as professional historians use their overarching narrative to make sense of events, so we also create narratives in our own head to justify our actions and create an identity for ourselves. We are many historians for our own lives. We try to sort events in our own lives into some coherent narrative of ourselves. As part of this process, we lift up certain events or characteristics and prioritize them over others, just as any professional historian would. These personal narratives have tremendous power to shape our actions and how we perceive the world around us. The two rival stories of David and Michal in 2 Samuel 6 are perfect examples of this. David and Michal are dealing with the same set of objective events, but they use them to create radically different narratives. David sees himself as the savior of Israel, he is the one who can defend the tribes against the Philistines and other, th and other threats. He is the one who will carry on proper loyalty to God. David, seems, David sees himself as God's anointed one. His actions, even though they might, all, they might not all be exemplary, are part of a larger narrative of what it takes to fulfill his personal destiny. In 2 Samuel 6, David celebrates God's blessing of his kingship. I bet if you were to ask David to describe himself 
or to justify some of his actions, he could do that without any trouble. Michal and her narrative are quite different. Michal is the one who was loyal to God's true king, her father Saul and her brother Ishbael. She accepted David's hand in marriage because it was going to strengthen her father's kingdom. She sees what David has done since, from his split with her father to his alliance with the Philistines and life as an outlaw, to his defeat of her brother Ishbael and Abner, as evidence of David's betrayal of her and of God's purpose for Israel. David's blatant co-opting of the Ark of the Covenant and his exposing himself before the crowd all fit into Michal's narrative of herself and David. Yes, David ignored Michal at the end of 2 Samuel 6, but I would guess if you were to ask Michal, she would be all too happy about that. Now, all of us do the same thing in our own lives. We see ourselves through the lens of a certain narrative or narratives that we create for ourselves. For many, those narratives are influenced by our families or our family histories. That's why genealogy can be so important for our own self-understanding. We see ourselves through a lens that has shaped our ancestors and shapes us today. I'm someone whose New England ancestry has shaped me. The people I'm descended from are those people who stayed behind. When new lands and new opportunities opened up out west, some people opted to stay behind in the rocky, unforgiving soil of New England. Don't ask me why. (laughs) They preferred the conservative path of digging through rocks to an uncertain future of a new life in the West. What kind of people do that? Traditional New England Yankees are stubborn. They believe that life is meant, intended to be difficult. Suffering is a part of life for New Englanders, as is a certain brand of conservatism. You do things a particular way because that's the way they've always been done. New England Yankees have always prized the life of the mind, and in their own way are proudly independent, and not quick to yield to the authority of others. Texans, of course have their own distinct narrative. Texans, traditional Texans, obsess over the Texas Republic because that's where the identity, the narrative of Texas, was established. It is fiercely independent. It is wary of any government interference. It is not obsessed with learning or education, but is very interested in business dealings. All of those traits go back to the Texas Republic and have a major influence today because they shape the way in which events today are interpreted. Have your ancestors or particular uh, people you come from shaped your view of your life. We also form narratives in our head based on the things that have happened in our lives up to this point. And those narratives, likewise, have a profound impact on us. Perhaps you were someone who had to struggle throughout your childhood. And therefore, you see your life as a series of constant struggles. Perhaps you were the golden child and have seen or tried to see the events of your life in that same way. You're the chosen one. You're the one who's expected so much of. Maybe you're a numbers person who likes to see things in a quantitative way, or perhaps you you value process. Or maybe you're someone who eschews all process and prefers to approach things by the seat of your pants. Whatever the lens is, it's there. And these lenses have tremendous power to shape our own interpretation of our lives. The problem with history, our own, our family, our cultures, is that those histories, that process of history-making, of constructing a narrative force us to ignore or de-emphasize those things that don't fit into our narratives. When David looked back at his life, he was not overly concerned with his betrayal of Saul. He saw that as his reaction to Saul's rejection of him. David had no qualms qualms avoiding or reinterpreting those events that might interfere with his narrative for him and his destiny. And the same is true for all of us. When we have events that befall us, they get in the way of our narrative, we often ignore them or do our best to try and reinterpret them. One personal failure is not a failure, 
It's merely a bump on the road on your way to your destiny. Or that one success the other day is an aberration. You are someone for whom things should never work out as they should. You possibly couldn't have met someone great to date. No one could possibly like you. You know that. That's a part of who you are. It's a part of your narrative. But it's in these events that we have a hard time fitting into our narratives. But it is in these events that we have a hard time fitting into our narratives. It's in those, it's in those that cognitive... <laughs> it's in the cognitive dissonance that those create, those events that we can't fit into our narratives, where the opportunity for true growth and self-discovery lie. The reality is that life does not always follow our narratives. Things do not fit into the plans that we create for them. Sometimes events of life so interrupt our plans that we are forced to reconsider our narratives. And it's at times like these where we're shaken to our core. And here lies the great danger of our necessary instinct to create narratives. They can lead us astray. These narratives can prevent us from seeing what's actually going on. The United States, for instance, has had the phrase, all men are created equal, ever since Thomas Jefferson wrote, those line, wrote that line in the Declaration of Independence. We are proudly a nation about equality. We proudly stand for it. And yet, the more we keep telling ourselves that, the more often we can, we can helpfully ignore blatant inequalities in legal and practical terms. When we keep repeating that we're a nation of equality again and again, do we actually look for where that's not the case or merely ignore the cognitive dissonance? More than anything else, I would argue that this is what continues to pollute our current political discourse. Donald Trump has created a narrative that he is making America great again. It's the basis of his campaign for president. He constantly interprets history through his tweets in which he boasts of making America great. Anything that might indicate something to the contrary, like an exploding national debt during a time of economic boom, or the harmful effects of a trade war, or the difficulty of negotiating with a country like North Korea, he conveniently ignores or distorts. The narrative has become all-important. The narrative must be repeated at all costs. Trump can never see himself as wrong or as a loser. His followers embrace this mentality. Those on the left similarly create a narrative where Trump is the manifestation of all that is evil in the world. Trump, to his credit, gives those on the left plenty of ammunition to use. But at the same time, in their rush to fit everything into an anti-Trump narrative, those on the left err from time to time. When they go too far in their criticism, when they do distort facts, Trump jumps all over to prove that the left is full of fake news. But the poisonous potential of our political narratives existed long before Trump and actually allowed him and helped foster his election. One of the most remarkable things about our nation's politics is that people consistently vote against their self-interest. The right has done a remarkable job of creating dual narratives of freedom and strength. Any talk of gun regulation, regardless of how well thought out, is an assault on freedom and a particular way of life. Any attempt at a sensible discourse about immigration feeds into the fear that the country is being taken over by the other, that there is an evasion of immigrants from Mexico who take jobs and bring crime. The facts don't matter in the face of the overwhelming power of narrative. On the left, there's a narrative that the right is heartless and cruel. The left celebrates the values of multiculturalism and diversity, but oftentimes ignores some of the challenges of a multicultural society. Even more problematic, I would say, is that the left has not been able in recent times to come up with a compelling narrative of its perspectives. Too often the left seems like a collection of policies that reinforce the status quo without a bold vision that can shape and direct the narrative. This is one reason why the pendulum has swung so far to the right in the past few decades. The left doesn't have a story, and stories, narratives, are all important. Other prevalent narratives pollute our culture. 
none more so than the persistent narrative of masculinity. Men are supposed to be tough, aggressive, almost warlike. Men are supposed to love contact sports. Men should not show weakness or emotion. When I went to the Houston Rodeo this past year, I was appalled when I heard Brad Paisley's song, I'm Still a Guy. I've never heard a song that so perfectly captured all that was wrong with our narrative of masculinity. And yet, looking around the packed energy stadium, it seemed that nearly everyone bought into that narrative. We see the same poisonous potential of personal narrative with King David. David in 2 Samuel 6 sees his whole life in a triumphal narrative of him as the anointed king of Israel. He ignores the things that might go against it. But the great tragedy of King David is that he has a very difficult kingship. His son and heir Absalom rebels against him. After his rape of Bathsheba and the killing of her husband Uriah to cover it up, he has to come to grips with his own sin and consumption by power. When he confronts Michal in 2 Samuel 6, he cannot see her side of things, but cruelly dismisses her, making her a permanent exile in, his own home, in her own home. So what are we supposed to do? As humans, we are meaning makers. We instinctively create narratives and stories. We, we always and must try to make sense of the events that befall us. How can we avoid some of the pitfalls that David falls into? How can we not blind ourselves to our faults and mistakes? How do we construct a narrative in our current political world that makes sense? How can we actually see the ambiguities that exist and yet have the perception to really wrestle with them? What we need is to believe that something runs under and through all history, something eternal and spiritual that can help us see the truth when we need to. We need to find a narrative that has its foundation in something more than our own wishes or illusions. That is where we, as Christians, are confronted with the narrative of the Bible. The Bible is a narrative of the people of Israel. It is a testimony of their walk with God. It tells the story of liberation from bondage and our tendency to fall back into bondage by turning away from God. We look at the story of David in First and Second Samuel and we don't get some whitewashed history. We get to see how David is fulfilling God's overall design for liberation, but also how David went wrong and what happened as a result. We get to see Jesus and his approach to life. Jesus' way of seeing the events of his own day through, through the narrative of God. Jesus was not discouraged even though he met his end on the cross. He knew that that was not God's final word for humanity. There was something more. When we can see where God is at work in our lives, when we can see the narrative of God at work, we can use that narrative to call us back to God. We can ground ourselves in something eternal. It's easy to despair when we look at the political situation today, but as Christians, we can use the narrative of the Bible as a counterweight to what we see, both on the right and the left. When we look closely at our lives, something that is not easy for any of us to do, we can examine how our lives actually conform or not, uh, not just to the narratives that we have constructed for ourselves, but to the narrative that God calls us to live into. Where are we following as Jesus would have us follow? Not. And how are we justifying that? Where are the fault lines in our thinking, the inconsistencies in our personal narrative that the story of God and the Bible can highlight? The brilliance of this passage in 2 Samuel 6, and I would say the entire David cycle, is that it allows us to see how humans construct our narratives. It gives us a look at what we are already doing. It forces us to take stock of ourselves and to mold our lives into being followers of God. Thank you, Michal, for you and for your witness to us. The Bible is not about everything good. The Bible is about what it means to be human.
and the interaction of humanity with the divine. And that is its enduring value. The Bible and its characters are not idols to be worshipped, but constitute a powerful and challenging narrative. That narrative has the potential to make us more aware of ourselves, more in line with God, and to lead us to being better humans. I'll take that Bible any day.